Welcome to the Best Science Medicine Podcast, BS without the BS. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 534th episode of the Best Science Medicine Podcast. My name is James McCormack, and I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. I'm Mike Allen. I'm a family doctor and the director of practice support at the College of Family Physicians of Canada. I'm also an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta. Jamie. We have a special guest. Yes, you know, and we've had Jamie, Jamie here before, but we've got him back to do, I think, uh, uh, one that we have not done. Uh, well, we've done the, the topic, but not the approach to the topic. Yeah, so the, the, the story here is, we'll get uh, Jamie to introduce himself. So we've talked about, this is going to be about glucose monitoring, but uh, Jamie's done some recent work on a TFP, and this is uh, it's the next step. There was originally sending people to get their glucose checked in laboratories. Then there was home monitoring with test strips, and now we've taken it the next step. So Jamie, why don't you introduce yourself and introduce the topic? So I'm an associate professor at the College of Pharmacy at the University of Manitoba. I um, also work as a practicing pharmacist with the Department of Family Medicine at the university as well. So I will be uh, talking about continuous glucose monitoring. Um, do you, do you want me to get into, um, to what extent do you want me to get into these, these devices and, and, and how they work? Sure, just give, a, just give a little bit of background of what they do. Yeah, talk about ohms and currents and that kind of thing. Just the, just the electronics of it, Jamie. Yeah, and, and the in, interstitial glucose. Right, right. Yeah. So you, you did find the things I know nothing about. Um, yeah. So um, continuous glucose monitoring is, I mean, essentially, it's always or continuously ready to provide interstitial glucose readings through a subcutaneous sensor that's that's uh, inserted. And there's really two types. We have what are called real-time glucose monitors. And most people would know that probably, at least in, in Canada, a variety of countries as the Dexcom G6, I think, is the, the most current. And, and that gives you every five-minute results that are sent to your device. So if it's your iPhone, uh, it sends it to your device, and you don't have to scan. It just automatically sends. And, and that's the real-timeness of, of the, the term. And then we've got intermittent, which are also known as flash glucose monitors and the Freestyle Libra would be the uh, example of that that we know most commonly. And so in that case, you're going to scan um, to your device whenever you want to, but you do need to scan. And now I believe uh, the, the second version of this has real-time alarms that let, let you know uh, when your sugar is, is much too high or too low. So those are optional alarms now that come with the, the flash glucose monitoring. And so now, now what we want to do is let's, I guess, look at the evidence around, you know, whether these are, uh, whether this improves any any sort of outcome. Yeah, and and so we've we've got we, we certainly don't have a an absence of of evidence and information for this, and so if if we look at um, the systematic reviews that are available and. And if you look back over the last five years, which probably takes into account most of what we'd be looking at anyway, because these these types of monitors haven't been around forever. Um, and, and if we look at people primarily on insulin, people with diabetes primarily on insulin, so type 1, obviously, and, and those with type 2 on insulin, that's where the bulk of the, the evidence exists for this. And so the systematic reviews that we have look at continuous blood glucose monitoring compared to the traditional self-monitoring where you're poking your finger and, and, and checking that way. 
And and so we've got uh, probably more than there. There would be more than eight, but but eight that that were uh, that would have usable data for this question of what kind of clinical outcomes can we achieve? And and I think you know we can talk about this later. But in my opinion, avoiding hypoglycemia, especially severe hypoglycemia, would be probably the primary outcome that we'd be looking at. And, and then we can talk about, you know, the A1C reduction that, that may come with this and patient satisfaction and those kinds of things. There's no way we'd be probably a bit better find that, you know, outcomes like heart attacks and strokes and all that are going to change. And we're going to have to in, in, infer, I guess, if that's the right word, that if you see a ch- an improvement in glucose control, you might see a change in, in outcomes. Yeah, and that's a big inference. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you've talked about James how you know when we look at things like A one C, it's 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 a continuum. It's a long spectrum, and and where do small changes land on that when it comes to prevention of things? So um, for yeah, sure, exactly. When when we look at uh, type one diabetes, we start with that, um, and we look at real time monitoring versus versus the traditional way of, of monitoring blood glucose. Um, we've got uh, we've got a significant amount of RCTs. It depends which systematic review you look at, but anywhere from 11 to 22 randomized controlled trials looking at about 1,400 to 2,500 patients in total. And if we look at severe hypoglycemia as being uh, a key outcome, and that in most of these studies, that meant you required some kind of third-party assistance to help you get through that event. There are three systematic reviews that have pretty good methodology that allows for us to, to come with come up with some kind of estimate of this. And, and they range from anywhere from four to 12 months, mostly four to six months was the follow-up for this event. I think there were one or two RCTs that went out to 12 months. And overall, there's about a two to 4% difference in severe hypoglycemic events. So meaning that continuous monitoring would save two to four percent of uh, hypoglycemic events compared to traditional monitoring so that would be a number needed to treat of about 30 to 55 ish and and that's 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 in type one that's in type one diabetics and that that to me sounds that sounds you know uh, like a a reasonable benefit if you would because you know severe hypoglycemic events are scary for everybody that's involved with them yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's the thing, I think, diabetes educators and, and myself who works a lot, um, I'm not, not a diabetes educator, but I work a lot with, with diabetes in, in my clinical practice. And the thing we are most worried about is, is exactly that, um, those, those severe events, um, for sure. When it comes to patient satisfaction, this is one of the things that's not well studied. It's con- inconsistently reported. Um, so we, we don't have a lot of patient volume here to, to go on, but from what we have, we can't see a difference in the systematic reviews in, in patient satisfaction between the different types of monitoring. When it comes to A1C, mean difference changes um, statistically, of, of course, because we've got big enough volumes and it's a, it's an easy to measure thing, 0.2 to 0.4% difference with real-time versus traditional blood glucose monitoring at about four to six months. And, and you know, that, that sort of difference in, in A1C is kind of a tricky thing to look at because uh, I know in the past, uh, Mike, we've sort of looked at, you know, what's the minimally clinically important hemoglobin A1C change? And that, even that's a tough number to come up with. 
I, I, I was just gonna. I laughed when you said that because we don't, we don't know. There's lots of drugs that may. It used to be 0.5 percent, and there's lots of drugs that make uh, A1C change by 0.5, and virtually all of those drugs have no effect on any outcome that matters. So, other than changing sugars, so. You know, this debate about does does these A1C changes, we know that if you increase your A1C uh, as you develop diabetes and let it progress, that that is associated with worse outcomes. But improving it, only I think a couple of the longer term like advance showed a reduction in microvascular outcomes from lower A1Cs. But the, but the vast majority of studies of individual drugs Really, only SGLT2s and um, GLP1s consistently show a reduction of, of outcomes of interest. Maybe, maybe, the big maybe, metformin. Um, so we're, you know, these these changes, I don't know what they mean. And we've argued that same point that I, I was going to mention earlier. We, you, you don't, you have to go back pretty far in the origins of tools for practice um, from this one, Jamie, which uh, was... Um, You'll have to correct me, but I think it's number 333. And in number three, tools for practice was using uh, regular home glucose monitoring. It found uh, about a 0.3 reduction in A1C with that type of monitoring. That was in mostly type 2 diabetics, and uh, as I mentioned. So, so number three was, I think, either 10 or 14 years ago or something. And that was the then and the, the the debate there was do you take people who, who are have type two diabetes who are not on insulin right or were they mainly on insulin did you say no they weren't on it the majority of the data that is the, the least strong the the data that suggests the least benefit are those not on insulin and that was a big it was a big funding decision because in Canada we're paying for test trips etc uh, for people probably getting a little advantage so what. What Jamie's just explained to us, and this is in type one diabetes, and I'm sure he's going to get to type two. But in type, if if you imagine the similar benefits, so going from no monitoring to monitoring with test strips, it goes, it improves things by about 0.3 at its best, and then it gets worse over time. And then if you do this monitoring on top, so instead of doing test strips, you actually do continuous monitoring, you get another 0.3. So. How important those numbers are, we don't we don't really know. It, it, I think the reduction in hypoglycemia, as Jamie indicated, is important, especially from a type one perspective. You know, I think where you where you you know having having to if you're a type one diabetic, you know, you should likely be taking you know measuring your glucose uh, on on a daily yep. basis. And if it's interesting to look at the patient satisfaction thing, because you'd have thought that it should improve patient satisfaction if you don't have to keep sticking yourself to check out your blood glucose. Um, uh, so that that's an interesting finding because I think the whole premise is that this is easier to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, to take this in, in a, a further um, discussion about, we've just talked about real time. And so when you get into flash, um, so this is again, flash is where you are, you are actively scanning your sensor to, to find out at any time what your, what your blood sugar is and, and whether you should make changes based on that. Um, 
the systematic reviews that we had available really only looked at one to two small RCTs. So we, we don't have much to go on. And so not surprisingly, severe hypoglycemia, discontinuation rates, A1C, there was actually no difference found in, in these systematic reviews for using flash monitoring compared to, um, to, to home blood glucose monitoring. Um, but we do have uh, a recent RCT that was just published in, in uh, 2022 um, that wasn't included, obviously, in, in these systematic reviews that had already been done, but it was 156 patients. So that already, you know, almost doubles or adds, you know, 50% probably to the patient volume that we have on this area. And they actually still didn't show a severe hypoglycemia difference. Uh, they showed numerically two out of 78 in the blood glucose monitoring had a severe event and zero out of 78 in the other group, but no statistics provided. And uh, I, I'm not sure if, if there is a difference, but it, it's it's going to be fairly small. Um, the A1C was 0.5% difference. Uh, so better reduction with flash, but again, you know, what, what does 0.5 uh, mean? But it probably falls in line pretty closely with what we talked about with real-time monitoring. Mm -hmm. And then what about the type 2 diabetics? Jamie, because those are the ones that, you know, it's, it, as James indicated, the ones we, that likely need the monitoring most are those on insulin. And that's obviously those who are type one. Um, but the vast majority of our patients, as you well know, are type two. So. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, for us, it's, it's our low hanging fruit of patients we're going to see it, but it's also low hanging fruit for marketing, uh, which, which is a little bit concerning, but what, what we do have available. So we've got for type two diabetes, most of the people in the studies we have available were on insulin. So these would be two diabetes, mostly on insulin, uh, real time versus blood glucose monitoring. We've got three systematic reviews looking at that. Um, when it came to severe hypoglycemia, there were no hypoglycemic events reported, no severe events reported. Um, so obviously we can't we can't find a difference when nothing, uh, no events were actually picked up. Um, so again, maybe not that surprising with type two diabetes when even if they're on insulin, they're probably on fairly small doses in a, in a lot of the cases. Right. Yeah, and and we saw similar A one C reductions that we would have seen in type one diabetes. Um, you know, in that somewhere less than 0.5%, but again, no difference in severe hypoglycemia. And then when we look at FLASH, uh, we've, we've got a couple of RCTs that looked at that. And again, outcomes somewhere between three and six months, uh, no difference in severe hypoglycemia, again, um, for, for FLASH this time. Um, we did have just released last month, there was a, a, a study by Aronson in diabetes, obesity, man, uh, metabolism uh, that looked at flash versus blood glucose monitoring in 116 people with type 2 diabetes that were not on insulin. So this is probably the one of the bigger trials that we have now from flash monitoring that doesn't include people um, on insulin. And um, yeah, so... Uh, not surprising there there's no difference in severe hypoglycemic events because there were almost zero hypoglycemic yeah. events in, in that population that wasn't on any insulin and then uh jamie did you mention the discontinuation yeah so there there was this is interesting i i a lot of questions come up in my mind about this but what they looked at was discontinuation of monitoring and they didn't talk about what that really meant it just meant you stopped monitoring, whether you are stopping your continuous monitoring or your, your at-home blood glucose monitoring. 
And uh, it was 6% versus 15%. So that would be a number needed to treat of 12, meaning that those on flash monitoring discontinued less. Every 12 that, that monitor that way, uh, one less would discontinue um, monitoring. Um, it's interesting to me, and I'm interested in your, your comments on this, that if you're given a really fancy, expensive machine, what's the likelihood you're going to stop using it? Um, I would think it would be less, but I, I don't know. I, I'm theorizing here. but um, I'm, I'm also wondering about discontinuation. And, and I, know, I know why you guys put it in, but it's interesting to think of that as an outcome if the intervention itself is not helpful. Like, do we care the number of people who discontinue glucosamine, for example, because we know it's probably not doing anything yeah. um, as an intervention. It's the same thing here. Like if it's, if it's not, if, if, if we're uncertain about the value of a reduction in A1C, it's not changing the risk of hypoglycemia. It's not changing satisfaction. So we really don't know if it's doing anything. So why do we care if it's being discontinued? Do you know what I mean? Like I, and then on top of it, it would be a biased result because you know which one you're getting. You know you're getting. You know you're getting the home glucose. Sorry, the uh, continuous monitoring. You know it's the fancy. It's the new. And past research has shown when people are spending more money or hear the word new, they're more likely to think it's better. Yeah. If you bought into the whole process that you know you really do need to know your glucose and it's really important to your care and all of that sort of stuff you know, you could see, well, now I now know exactly what's going on. And I'm just wondering, what, and Jamie, in your experience, have you seen, <clears throat> at least from an educational perspective, is there, is there, do you think there's any benefit? I mean, I, you could make an argument that maybe, and, and I'm not making this argument, but one could make the argument that, that maybe you could use it for a while to see, to educate yourself about what food does and all that sort of stuff does to your glucose and, and then maybe not do it after that. But I, I don't know, is, are you seeing people use it that way? I, I haven't yet. No, I mean they, they might be. Um, I, I'm not. I I have one example of uh, I, I think where I've where I've seen that, and uh, it would be a good example of excessive use of of this these uh, these machines to to the point that I've I've expressed to these types of patients that this what you're trying to achieve here with looking at trying to flatten out curves and and completely dictate rises and falls is is not only unrealistic. But, um, A, we don't know if it's helpful, and it actually might be harmful if you're trying to make your lows as low, you know, your low peaks as low as possible and those kinds of things. So, um, and, and, and so the, these are patients that are kind of trying to sync their food and their insulin incredibly closely using this type of machine. And, and there might be some advantage in that, but I think it can very quickly go too far. It's, it's interesting because... Just as has been insinuated here, there there is a lot of enthusiasm for knowing at all times possible what sugars are. And every time you think we can talk about things like A1C, we can talk about hypoglycemia, you know, patient satisfaction, etc. And we'll show that there's not much of an effect and people will argue A1C is still important, but we don't we don't actually know that. But even if you throw all of that away. And, and ignore the patient satisfaction stuff. I've heard a lot of clinicians say, but it's so important for patients to know. And that I, I don't, I don't have a measurement to assess that. I don't have any way. And so it's, it's a perfect marketing ploy 
I was just at a conference last weekend and a diabetes specialist got up and said very clear, and the question was posed, what about patients not on insulin? And the response was, everyone should be on one of these. And, and that's the exact problem is that, you know, the, the, there's this belief out there that, the, you know, the tighter your glucose control, no ma- almost no matter who you are. I mean, they, you know, the people talk about, well, there's the, you know, the, the, the change that happens to your glucose, you know, 10 minutes after you eat and 20 minutes after you eat and 30 minutes after you eat. And it's that's the key thing and all that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, I'm sure that could make people sort of obsessive about that, especially when you hear people like what you just said, Mike, about that everybody should be on this. Yeah, yeah. everybody who's diabetic at least should be on it. And it was, it, it, it was, yeah, that, that level, like there's, there's, it's always better to know that kind of once you once you put that argument out there. I don't know how you argue against it, even though there's no evidence that it's better. Just the idea, the concept, is so uh, compelling that our many of our colleagues are very much advocates for knowing your glucose at all times. Yeah, and, I, and I'm I'm wondering that if they don't, do they not see people become obsessed by these things? I mean, we we we've seen it you know, with blood pressure measurements, because we could do blood pressure measurements all the time. And, uh, you know, I'm sure both of you guys have experience of people coming in with the sort of the Excel spreadsheet of, of blood pressures. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes I think I've, I've heard of people and I think I've done this as well. I've, I've said, you know, we should maybe take away this device. Yeah. <laughs> because- it's it's just it's getting uh, a bit ridiculous. It's adding burden to you, and and uh, you know, in the case of blood pressure, it's probably raising your blood pressure. Um, I you know I, I think we we've all experienced just electronic devices in general continue to provide us with a good chunk of useless information, and yet we continue to you know we can't shake this feeling that we need to turn to the devices to continue to provide us with useless information, right? And I think you know although with with continuous glucose monitoring, I have no doubt that we can glean important patients can glean important information uh, from them, especially with with type one diabetes. But my fear is how strong this urge will be. And how how strong it is, especially when it's coming from, um, you know, uh, quote unquote experts in the field, that patients are just going to continue to rely on these devices to provide them with potentially unnecessary information that just clouds the whole picture. And the last person, the last thing I'd want to be doing is going out to dinner with someone who keeps checking their glucose. Yeah, right. You know, it's it's that you know you, you know how do you how do you not then sort of you're not going to enjoy your meals if you if you're always looking at it and and then you're trying to second guess well was it was it the potatoes that did it or was it this or you know um but yet so that's i mean that's the tricky part because i think i mean from 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 your review and it's it's a really solid review of this the data i think you could make a legitimate argument for type 1 diabetics i think uh mm-hmm. and i think you, i think everyone would agree right yep I would agree. I also say that uh, if you're a type one diabetic, James will still go out to dinner with you. Yes, I do. <laughs> but only if you pay. <laughs> but that's always the case, James, isn't it? No, I know I, exactly. I'm not saying anything different. I, I like to be consistent. <laughs> but but you know, with you know, with type with type type one diabetics, you know, if if we if if they didn't have to stick themselves, you know two, three, four times a day. I think that that in and of itself is an advantage. And we have decent evidence that it shows that you reduce the number of severe hypoglycemic events. So, I mean, I think that's that's sort of a no-brainer. Where 
uh, gets very tricky. And, and unfortunately, it's where most of the money sh could be, I guess, is in type 2 diabetics. So I, do you guys see any place for this if you're not on insulin? No. I patients, sorry, I'll let Jamie go into that. But for patients who really do want to know how much something like uh, exercise changes things for them, what types of food they eat, those people who really want to embrace that, I would guess, sure. Or who've had hypoglycemia events even off um, insulin. So let's say because they're on... But then I'd be looking at changing their medicines before I'd be looking at, at um, these kind of things. But some, some people will choose them. I just don't think I could advocate for them for the average patient. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Mike. I, I, I think they're, um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a costly way to monitor those things and to, to keep track of those things. But if, if they have the finances to do so, um, like you said, I, I'm not going to advocate for it, but um, I, you know, they, they would have my support in helping them with that. Um, and with, with, I guess, the caveat that, again, you don't want them to become um, so intensely focused on it that that it just becomes a, a bit ridiculous and and I think yeah you know there there certainly I see a good number of patients with diabetes who despite our best best efforts not to use insulin uh, they're on insulin they we can't figure out why they have such widely fluctuating blood glucose ups and downs um, those would be patients where I you know there may be um, a, a place as well for those uh, type 2 people with type 2 diabetes. And, and we and we have to also don't. There's some important context. We mentioned very briefly the, the the cost of doing this, but there's definitely an inconvenience to do it. I mean, you have to replace the sensors every seven to fourteen days. And what about the cost? I think it depends where where you where you look um, from a Manitoba perspective. I would expect you know test strips in Manitoba are somewhere around seventy to eighty cents a, a test strip. So, um, you know, if you would test your sugar four times a day, for example, um, that you'd be looking at about twelve hundred dollars uh, per year um, for for that. Um, and if you use these machines, we're looking at twenty five hundred to six thousand um, dollars uh, per year for uh, for one of these machines and the sensors. You know, and again, I think you know for the convenience of not having to measure your glucose four times daily and if i had those fundings i think that would be a reasonable uh trade-off at least in in my mind and again we're now going back again to the type 1 diabetics where they are they could in theory uh and it depends on what evidence you look at benefit from you know more uh, uh closely following their glucose you know the four times daily versus sort of the or, or at least four times sometimes four times insulin or or uh, twice a day insulin and that sort of stuff. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very tricky. Uh, yeah, and part, I, part of, go ahead. Go ahead I was just going to say part of the, part of the issue here is, you know, we look at satisfaction and as Jamie's reported, there's not very much difference in quality of life or satisfaction. And it's not even being reported often. But one of the things I remember when I was working with CDEC is I was blown away because we would look at the quality of life and patient satisfaction with different monitoring, things like that, and or, or hypoglycemia events. And I remember that we could find a study that showed that hypoglycemia in any of its forms is the worst thing imaginable in life, all the way to third-party rescue or third-party assistance hypoglycemia is kind of a 
blasé thing that really didn't matter to these people, to some people. And I was, I was absolutely blown away by that. But what happens as a clinician is you bring your own views to the encounter about how important it is to monitor, to know what your sugars are and all of those things. And we sometimes pass some of our feelings on about that to our patients. So some patients who are type one even might prefer just the regular test strips. It's, it, it's not conceivable to me <laughs> that someone would on a, on an average basis, but there, I bet you there are people who prefer that. It's, and so I, you know, I, I agree with you, James, but I, I, like, it wouldn't surprise me if there are people who would still prefer to stick with the, the glucose strips. Even oh yeah, no, for sure. And, and especially if they've done right. it, for, especially if they've done it for years and it works for them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no, I, I, no, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's an interesting, and so if, if, I agree with you. I think the, the the biggest benefit is the reduction in severe hypoglycemia. But with the type 1 diabetics, the best way to prevent hypo... There's a whole bunch of ways to prevent hypoglycemia. The first one is to not use sulfonylureas because they don't do anything anyway. I think that for would type be... Type 2, yeah. You know, for type 2, yeah. Uh, pardon? For type 2s. Yeah, for type 2s. And, and then for... Um, uh, so not use sulfonylureas. If you get sick and you're not eating, you should stop most of your glucose-lowering medications, at least while you are initially ill, right? I mean, that's the one of the issues that if you don't eat and you're taking hypoglycemics, that can get you into trouble. And then insulin, you know, we talked about this in the past, Mike, is that there's not great evidence for insulin in type 2 diabetics. Now, we don't have a lot of evidence. And mm -hmm. certainly, I think there's a role for insulin in people who are symptomatic from their type two diabetes. But you know, it, it is tricky. I don't. Is that what you, is, is that sort of the approach that you take, Jamie? Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. I, I I think we we try to avoid use of insulin if if possible um, because of mostly because of the the hypoglycemia and the weight gain, um, but also because of really a, a lack of, of good data when it comes to mortality, suggesting it reduces mortality or cardiovascular outcomes. Um, but there are going to be those patients that, like you said, are are actually symptomatic. They may not um, feel it because they've been riding high for so long, but um, certainly, you know, with, with A1Cs of, of 11 or 12, and we, we are, you know, trying to figure out some way that we can actually get them down um, to a, a zone that we would expect they would feel less symptomatic or, or not symptomatic. And, and I think in that, in that population, you could maybe argue that there's some value to, to, to using these monitors, I think. Um, but, and again, what, you know, what, once you get a feel for what, what the medications are going to do to you, which is in contrast to the type 1 diabetics, you know, it may, I, don't, I just don't see a role for this and the evidence certainly doesn't support it. Uh, anything else you guys want to mention about this? Just that so we have, you know, when you're saying about insulin, James, just a quick note about that. We have evidence that it, in type 2 diabetics, that it doesn't change outcomes. We have a number of clinical trials now. Some started it early, some that waited for later, etc. And we just don't have evidence that it changes outcomes that we can tell. So in trials where they extended and you could use any drugs, there was reduction in microvascular over the long term. But most trials of insulin haven't shown 
changes. Um, now that said, if the sugars are very high and there's not much else working, it is the most reliable agent to reduce A1C meaningfully. It, it, so, so if that's, and, and as you say, for patients becoming symptomatic, et cetera. So there is a place for insulin in type two diabetes, but it's, um, it, it's, uh, and one of my colleagues has said to me, one of our problems with insulin, getting people to take it is that, or agree to it is that we've sold it as the last resort and as a threat. Well, if this drug doesn't work, you need to go on insulin, or if we can't get control of your sugar, you need to go on insulin. And, and I think we've approached with all the caveats that it doesn't really do much, we have to recognize how we're also selling it wrong. <laughs> we're, we're making people afraid of it. And, and uh, I think that's, that isn't helpful either. So I should stop threatening my patients, Mike? Is that what you're Yeah, saying? that's it. <laughs> and I was going to say, Jamie, with the uh, monitors, you've, you've talked about diabetes, but I think you, you don't have diabetes, but you wear a monitor. You wear two to three monitors, don't you, for, for cycling to make sure you're at maximum performance absolutely yeah minimum of two. no minimum of two yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 actually that's an ankle monitor that's a different thing <laughs> that's right. oh, yeah yeah I'm, and i'm uh, i'm encouraging you to test your cholesterol too before and after with your home test trips for cholesterol <laughs> anyway as, as most people know when we get to this point there's no more useful information coming out of the podcast <laughs> Um, but no, a uh, great review, and that was uh, yeah, those three of you who did this was uh, Samantha Mo, Michael, uh, Mike Colber, who's been on the podcast a, a number of times, and and you, Jamie. And so it's a really important area because it you know it it, it feels sort of brand new, and and you can monitor everything all the time. But really, we do need to look at the best available evidence, and then use some common sense and and put that into perspective. Uh, so uh, speaking of common. Speaking of common sense, uh, we have our meme uh, annual meme conference coming up in Vancouver, uh, May 12 and May 13. Uh, the program is all set, ready to go. Uh, you can now sign up and uh, attend if you'd like, either in person or uh, you can live stream it. And we would love it if you would uh, attend. So that's May 12, May 13 in um, lovely Vancouver. Anything else that we need to talk about, Mike? Nope, that's it, James. Thanks. So I think we'll just leave it at that. So thanks as always for listening. Talk to you later.